the volume. The Sessions is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. They're America's number one sportsbook for a reason, y'all. It's so easy to use. It's safe and secure. That's one of the main things for me. I don't want any BS. I love that there's no BS with FanDuel. Plus, you get your winnings fast. Now winnings are delivered in as quick as two hours. Plus, it's super fun to combine multiple bets from the same game into a same game parlay. It's awesome. So if you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with the promo code Renee, that's R-E-N-E-E, so that they know that I sent you. Disclaimer, 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, Wyoming, or West Virginia. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777, or visit ccpg.org slash chat for Connecticut, 1-800-GAMBLER, or visit fanduel.com slash RG for Colorado, Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, 1-877-770-STOP for Louisiana, 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan, 1-877-8-HOPE-NY, or text HOPE-NY for New York, Tennessee Redline, 1-800-889-9789. And 1-800-522-4700 for Wyoming. Visit www.1800gambler.net for West Virginia. Hey guys, welcome to the best of the sessions. What we have done is we've combined the best of Tuesday's episode and Thursday's episode, mashed them together to give you a beautiful little audio gift for your ear holes. We have some awesome, awesome guests on the show. Cannot thank people enough for taking the time to, to come hang out with me. Give me a little bit of their time. We give you a little bit of that. We all get to hang out and enjoy it, learn a little bit about each other. Um, so it's really cool to mash these all together and you guys can get those little abbreviated highlights of both of the interviews throughout the week. Also, of course, if you want to listen to the full lengths, you can do that. They all exist. Uh, just make sure to check out all things from the Volume Podcast Network. Like, subscribe, turn on those notifications, all that good stuff. But let's get into it. Here's the best of the sessions. But can we just have like one quick moment to talk about like your guys' solo interviews and how much they changed my goddamn life? They were great interviews. Oh my gosh. I've watched the Dax one like two times at least now. Man, like that one, that was hard for me to get through. Like just because I'm a big emotional baby these days, like I'm go, I don't know. I just get emotional thinking about all these things and like I can see like how bad it was for him and how much he's had to fight to get through it. Oh God, it's beautiful dude though. You know what I find really crazy is like knowing you guys and, you know, being able to spend time together, but like really getting into like that other level of like knowing a person. I just like after both of your guys interviews, I just thought about you guys for like a week after the interview. I was just like, wonder what they're like doing right now. Like I just thought about you guys so much. So thank you for that. You know, I was just telling my story and I didn't think anything of it. You know, I didn't think like, oh, I'm breaking barriers or, you know, or going to change any lives. I just wanted to tell you my story. And, um, you know, man, all the uh, feedback from it and the people that uh, would like, I got so many texts from people that were that worked with us or are working with us. I got so many tweets about how that helped them understand they're not alone. Um, And that's that was the best thing ever. So thank you. Yeah, I was the same. I mean, I just like blown up on like Twitter, Instagram, like from people that we actually know uh, in real life to like, uh, I mean, not that that's not real life, but you know what I mean? Um, you know, friends, coworkers, whatnot of, uh, of people that, that could really relate to that. So anyways, it's just, it's really cool to be able to have conversations like that. And I appreciate you guys having been so like open and honest and like really peeled back that layer. And now I get to have you guys back on And now we just get to do like some FTR. Like now we get to have some fun, have a little hangout, talk a little shit. Last time I apparently talked shit, I got in a lot of trouble from the internet fans, the Shawn Michaels fans. So let's be careful. Wow. People really get up in arms, huh? Dude, I didn't even say anything bad about the guy. You know, I just told the truth. I told the story. And like I, I, you know, you and I were talking the next, I don't know, maybe three or four days later. And I, I was getting texts from random numbers and uh, like fake numbers. They were threatening me or say, calling me a crybaby and things like that. It was so crazy, but I never said a bad thing about him. All I said was this thing happened and I hope we can reconcile. That was it. 
and man, I got in a lot of shit for that. It's crazy how opinionated somebody gets over your experiences. Like giving a personal account of how something happened can get so much anger and hatred from somebody in response that has no other relationship to the situation other than they read your account of it. I guess it just kind of boils down to people's fandom of anybody. And if you're a huge fan of somebody, and obviously Shawn Michaels has such a massive fan base, he was the wrestler for so many people. So if people feel like maybe that uh, isn't shown in the light in which they imagine that the situation could have been, or maybe it's, you know, the wrong side of the story or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's really crazy how people can like kind of attach themselves to things like that. Have you, well, I mean, I guess you guys will be in conversations like that. I mean, damn, looking at what, you know, you guys go to bat for tag team wrestling all the time of being the best tag team in the world. You guys must get it both on like both sides a lot, right? If people that are massive fans or people that are like, no, you guys aren't like, what is that experience like for you guys? I don't mean this as a pat on the back for us, but I think we are probably the most polarizing tag team in the world. Because there are either people that love us and love our style and, and, and get us and understand us, you know, or you don't. And that's okay either way. I feel like now more people are starting to come around, which is awesome, because I think we've opened up to them and we're allowing them to, to come in and, and, and enjoy us. But for so long, it was either you're on, the, you're on the side of they're slow and boring, or you're on the side of they're intense and they make the most out of what they do. And there was no real in-between. There's one that says, oh, they're all right. It was one of the two. Like that said, we're, we're very polarizing. I feel like as a team, and it's because we're very outspoken and we're very passionate about it. And we're not shy about how we feel. It's twofold for us, I feel like, because we also take great pride in doing our jobs really well. So when we're the bad guys, I don't care to rub people the wrong way on social media. I don't care to be the asshole. I don't care for any of that. Like, the more I can get people to dislike me and have less redeeming qualities, the better I'm doing my job. And the more I can blur the lines nowadays between what's real and what isn't because the curtain's been pulled back so much. I like when people aren't sure. So I take a lot of pride in that. So for one, we're doing our job and we're trying to do it to the best of our abilities. But two, we're also just very real about what we are and what we feel. And I think now we stuck by our message for so long, what we wanted to do, what our vision for tag team wrestling was. We wanted to spearhead that, like we're kind of getting to paint that picture now and people are seeing it come together with the things we've been doing with the Young Bucks match and the Ring of Honor match with the Briscoes and the Triple A stuff and wrestling rock and roll and like setting up matches that for us are things that we want to check off. These are buzzworthy. These are things that like are getting some attention, even if it's just because fans didn't realize that it was going to be possible. And now we get to make those things possible. And so for those, I think that's why it's so rewarding for us, but we do get a lot of like either people love us or people hate us. And like you said, people are coming around more now because we've been more open and we're being, you know, a little less open to rubbing people the wrong way. We're not as divisive as we used to be because we don't, we don't want to shove that away anymore. We don't want to shut that off and try to stop it. Like I encourage it now because it's fun and like, it's real and it just kind of happened. And I think a lot of it happened with your podcast. Like people got to see us open up and be, vulnerable, real human beings with the things that we deal with on a daily basis. So I think that was a huge part of it. When you guys are sort of towing that line and you do let people behind the curtain and just every wrestling in general of having people behind the curtain so much more, how hard is that for you guys to tow the line between what's real and what's not and what you let people in on versus like, just being a, you know, a dick on social media because that's what the character is doing. Like, how is that? So I think there are so many guys now in wrestling that think they're great heels. And when you consciously think, oh, I'm a great heel. No, you're not. They're playing the part. The fans are playing the part. Today in wrestling, to be a successful bad guy, um, you have to do more than just say, oh, this town is full of fat asses. It's now about the work in the ring, too. And a lot of the heels today, and I sound so old and bitter when I say that, I don't, I don't mean that, but a lot of the heels today don't, don't grasp that because in today's world of instant gratification, it's easy for a performer or a wrestler or whatever you want to call us go out there and hit these beautiful moves and to, to get the reaction. But for us, and this is what made us polarizing, I think, 
was we worked so hard as the bad guys to make our baby faces look better than they could ever look. So we would sacrifice all of our quote unquote cool stuff to make sure they looked good because the more the people love the baby faces, they're not going to hate wrestlers. But the more we can make them love our baby faces, subconsciously, they will boo us because they want that good guy to win so bad. You've got to be confident in your abilities and understand as a bad guy, you got to take some stuff out and make sure your baby face looks way better than you do. And I think that's what we excel at as bad guys. And I think people slowly, just recently, have started to understand that. And that's why they started to respect us. And now we've opened up and allowed them to come in. And now we're the biggest baby faces in the world. This is what I've always found really fascinating with pro wrestling is the psychology side of things. You can't just be like, oh, this is how it works. It does take years and years. And for whether it's talent feeling that way or fans feeling that way, um, there's just so much to learn and so many things to know and to feel and all of those things. How long do you think it usually takes for someone to like fully get a good grasp on the psychology side of pro wrestling? I would say like you're never going to stop learning different psychology things and like ways to interact with the crowd or to maximize things or to learn when to slow down and when not to slow down. And I would say at least a decade until you even get comfortable enough to where like you have that it's a, it's, it's second thought now, like it's, I mean, it's second nature. Like you don't have to think about it as much. So that part comes easier. Like for me now, I don't have to think about movements as much when I'm in there because they just come a little more natural. So I can think more about why I need to do something or when I need to do something, or I can listen a little bit more. And it took me a long time to get to that point. And I, I would say, I can't really put it in years, but I can say you put it in experience match wise. You just need to wrestle a lot of matches in front of a lot of different crowds, good crowds, bad crowds, good matches, bad matches. And I say it all the time. I learn more in the bad matches or in front of the bad crowds because it forces me to like really dissect what went wrong or what didn't work. It sounds so cliche, but it's reps. And you just have to get those reps over and over and over. And you got to listen to them. You can't ignore it either. Like so many, they think they have an understanding of it. So they, they stop trying to learn and listen. And they just go through the motions of what they think works. And they never change that up. They become hell-bent on this formula. And they can never be talked out of certain things. They're just, they can't be told anything because they're always right. And that's when you know you're wrong. If you're telling Jerry Lynn, no, you're wrong, more than likely than not, he's not the one that's wrong. To add on to what Cash said, like, it's not just a time. You can't put a, a time on it. It comes down to the talent, too. And when the talent becomes open to understanding, God dang, again, we sound old, but it's, it's really not about the moves. It's about the emotion, like pulling the emotion from the fans. My wife considers she has no idea about wrestling. But as a fan, she knows, or, you know, whoever knows what happiness and sadness and frustration. They know those emotions. And so when the wrestler decides, okay, I've got to sacrifice my moves for the emotion, for the feeling. And when they decide to structure their matches around those emotions, that's when you become a professional. And that's when you get the psychology part down. Regal helped me get over to England right after me and Dax had our match to help get him signed. And I, I, I was set up to go to England for like a three or four month tour for Brian Dixon. I've told Regal this before numerous times but that for me was a moment where I really started to understand psychology more and it started to click for me more because of the reps I was getting and because when you're over there you're doing shows for him at least five nights a week minimum you just get so many reps and it's in front of mostly family crowds so it's a lot of children and that's the the purest form of emotion like kids don't try to suppress it like adults do like they haven't been told not to scream and yell like so like they're reacting to everything and you learn to listen to that and harness that and like, okay, they're, they're going nuts for this. How do I, how do I incorporate that this time? Or how do I use that more? It's like that for me was a moment where I was like, okay, light bulb. And it was England getting the reps and getting like those crowds where I could listen to them and learn. I guess still sort of on the note of psychology, holy shit, you guys are having a singles match this week. Like, I can't wrap my head around this emotionally, mentally. This is a lot, I think, for a lot of people to handle. How are you guys feeling about this? Dax and I always hold ourselves to a very high standard. And because we do that, because we sound that trumpet so much, like the fans expect us to deliver too, because 
if we if we're going to build it up, we got to be able to hold up our end of the bargain. We really wanted this, and we wanted to have this match for a while, and we didn't want to just force it to where it wasn't going to make sense. Because I've I've been saying, like I said, like we'll never like do a breakup angle. I don't want to ever not be a tag team with Dax, and like I would rather retire than even think about it. So we wanted to have this match just because I want to test myself. Like I want to be better. I want to learn. And I think Dax is the best wrestler on planet earth. And I think he has been for a long time. And I love seeing him get the recognition that he's getting now. I want to just for myself, I want to step up and I want to work with him and I want to like raise my game because that's what we should do. We should all strive to be better. And I don't want to do a lot of single stuff, but there's certain things like this that we've talked about for years and when we had this opportunity, we're like, we have, this is the only time it makes sense. It's the perfect setting. We get to pay tribute to Owen and pay respects to Owen, which is huge for us. And we get to have this match that we've dreamed of, but we didn't want to force because the team means more than anything to us. So if it doesn't make sense, like we'll, we'll have a training match in a warehouse in front of nobody and we'll give it everything we have and we'll wrestle an hour draw. And that'll be the time we work each other. But we had this opportunity instead. And I'm very thankful that we do. You know, we talked about my anxiety last time I was on with you. And a lot of that stemmed from uh, trying way too hard with everything and trying to be the perfect wrestler. I, I found out perfection was what was causing my anxiety. And so I would nonstop watch wrestling and nonstop have ideas. And it, and it really broke me down. It put me in a really dark place. I still love wrestling. I still watch it every single day. But I try not to uh, obsess over it so much uh, while I'm home. So honestly, for this match, like I have ideas, obviously I have ideas and he does as well. Um, and we want to have the best match in the world. Um, we want to, we want to have the best match of all time, but I'm trying not to obsess about the match because I know what'll put me back in a dark place. I don't want to do that. I want to have fun in this match. And ever since I've pulled myself with God, with so much help from him, um, pulled myself out of that dark place. We've been having the best matches of our career. We've been having the most fun, uh, of our career. And that's what I want to do with this one. I want to have the best match we can. I want to have fun. Uh, I know we're going to hit each other really, really, really hard. And I'm up for that. I'm sure he is too. But I'm trying not to think about it as much. Same. I've I've never watched as much as Dax because he watches so much wrestling. It's almost inhuman. But like, I love to just like sit down and I'll, I'll watch one or two matches in a row a couple of times a day. And it's just, for me, it, it gets my brain rolling some. But if I watch too much... I think about just what I watched and going into this match with him. I just had these ideas of moments just for me, I think would be great and beautiful and cool. Like, I don't think about the moves at all. Like, I don't know of any like actual move I want to hit. I don't know of any sequence that would be really cool and creative and look like the matrix. I don't care about that. Like I want to have just wrestling match where there's holds and there's exchanges and there's everything matters and everything can breathe and everything can be felt. and. I know we have ideas. I know we're, like, we've had a few back and forth and we have some stuff that we have we'll probably write down. But for the most part, just like everything we've been doing, it's just we get there, we start talking and things start flowing that way. And I think that really works best for me because if I have a preconceived notion of what I want to do before I even get there and before things start really rolling, it's always going to change. Like I, I learned that from the past. I'd have so many ideas and I'd get there and then we'd start talking and nothing makes sense. And I'm like, don't need that. Don't need that. So I'm just like too much wasted time. I'm not going to keep wasting that time. And now I think I, I trust him because like I said, he's the best in the world and he can do anything he wants when he puts his mind to it. I trust me because again, I know how good we are when we're in there. So I think it's just going to be one of those things where not a whole lot of preparation like match wise, but just making sure my cardio is ready because I know we're going to run. Oh, I can't wait. I'm so excited for this as I'm sure everybody else is. Um, Just like everybody was so damn excited to see you guys with the Briscoes. Holy crap. Where did this rank for you guys? What was that match like? What was the day like for you guys? What's it been like afterwards? Let's get into it. I told Dan after the match was over, I said, that's our Brett Austin. You know, I don't know if we'll ever have a better match than that one. And that's okay with me. I can, I can hang my hat on that. That's I can hang my hat on that whole week, you know? them and the, and the Bucks match. But specifically that match, I can hang my proverbial wrestling hat on that match and say, this is what I do for a living. This is my legacy. And this is why we were the best tag team in the world. There were no moves. No one thought of any move we wanted to do. 
It was all built on intensity and emotion and winning. That's it. Because we wanted to be the best tag team in the world. They wanted to be the best tag team in the world. We thought we were the toughest bastards in the world. They thought they were the toughest. You know, so, so going into it, all we knew was emotion, intensity, and trying to win. Because everyone can relate to that. And that's how we just built our match. Because in your, in your workplace, you, you want to win every single day so you can keep your job. And that's just what we built the match around. And it just fucking was, was beautiful. I was on the, I, I didn't want to watch it for two or three days. And then finally, I was like, you know what? I'm going to watch it on the elliptical. And I was in the gym and broke down in tears while I was watching it. That's how much I loved it. I had to sit and digest on it for a few days because I didn't know how I felt. Like I was so emotionally just drained, emotionally and physically drained and just wore out. I was like, okay, sit here for a day and a half and don't move. Just breathe, decompress, get back to being a human being. And once we did I was so proud of what we were able to do with those guys because of how long and how unsure it all was building up to it. And the fact that we didn't know up until two weeks prior that it was going to happen and we've never met them in person other than one time and we've never wrestled them. So there's so many unknowns and so many variables going into it. So like when you finally get everything set and you're ready to go, like then you you have to deliver. Like, so you've done all the other parts and it's that, that enough was stressful. Now it's time to deliver. And, the day of for me, like it was stressful enough as it was because like that week was a very long week. I drove to Columbia like an idiot. I drove six hours to Columbia, did the Ass Boys match, drove back on Thursday. I got back late Thursday. I flew out to Dallas the day of the show. I got in late because my flight was delayed that morning. Pretty much went straight to the hotel, showered, and then went straight to the building. And nothing was talked about. Nothing was planned. We just we started putting everything and let it roll. And that's how it happened. That's how it came together. And once it was said and done, like I said, I had a couple of days to sit and look at it and really take it in. I said, yeah, that's the best we've ever done. And I'm very, like, I'm very proud of it because of how crazy it was and the pressure we put on ourselves to, to do it. And for people to say that we delivered or over-delivered, that just means we, we did what we wanted to do. And we can, like I said, hang our hat on that. For you guys to not have like the huge heads up, I mean, like you said, it was about two weeks to knowing that it was actually going to happen. How did it all come about? How did everything fall into place for this to finally happen? We were trying to figure out if it was going to happen, when it would happen, where it would happen for a while. And then finally, Tony told us, like, hey, working on something, it's in the line, it's, in, it's coming down the pipe. If it works out, we'll have an answer one way or the other. And then it looked like things weren't going to happen. Like, you know, like, we were told, no, we had kind of written it off and like, okay, we're just, you know, we'll cool off for a little bit. We'll figure something out. We'll find a backup plan. And then hopefully we can heat it back up to where it was. That was really the hope. And then like a week later we get the, Hey guys, it's happening now. <laughs> like everything's on. So looking at this momentum and, you know, we've been talking, you know, at the beginning of this about this slow burn of you guys doing your thing, staying the course, being the best tag team uh, there is. That leads me to, to rumblings that I've been seeing on the Internet. The WWE wants to re-sign you guys. Have you heard anything about that? Is there any truth to this? What do you guys know about that? I think we know about as much as everyone else does. Okay. But we, we left that place because they didn't put a focus on tag team wrestling and we knew there was a ceiling sure. to where we could go um, in, in the company. And um, we wanted to do more. We wanted to be known as the greatest tag team of all time. And we had to leave there to do that. And we, and we knew that. So that's why we were so insistent on them giving us our, our releases. Uh, and now, you know, <laughs> I, I sent them a screenshot of all the – the different, you know, news outlets or whatever saying they want to, they want to resign us. And that's flattering and it's cool. You know, we, we've got some more time, uh, but I told Tony, you know, cause obviously he heard about it. I told him that there's no way that we would ever talk contracts with anybody while we were working for him. Um, we have way too much respect for him and, and, you know, our word means something, you know, then I start thinking like, okay, do they want us or they, do they want AEW to not have us? You know, it's cool for Cody to do what he's done. But, you know, there's just so many unknowns there. Uh, will we ever focus on tag team wrestling like we've been able to the last two years? You know, me and money is not everything for us. Uh, I do have a family, so I have to take care of them. But it's not all about the money. It's about what we leave behind for wrestling, too. 
I was driving to the airport when he sent me the screenshot and I was like, is this like legit? Is this a real thing? That's how I found out. Sitting here at the airport, getting ready to board the flight, I'm thinking about like how crazy this all is and how crazy this, like I said, this whole year has been. And then that was just one more thing where I'm like, how is this real? And I don't know what, how much has changed there as far as what we wanted tag team wrestling to be. And now, like I said, we're getting to show everybody what tag team wrestling can be and what we our vision of it is. And it's buzzed about right now. Tag teams are killing it everywhere, not just us. Like We are at the very top of that obviously but tag team wrestling in general is killing it right now and it's it's creating buzz and it's got some of the best tag teams we've had at the same time in the past couple of decades i would say just from everybody in new japan impact AEW, wwe mlw there's so many ridiculously talented teams and we're getting to kind of help put a focus on that and that's what we always wanted to do so i was blown away when i read it and it kind of like it makes you think about a bunch of different things. But right now, like I said, we're getting to paint what we see wrestling's tag team picture as. And I'm happier than I've been. I make more money than I've been. So I don't even want to think about anything other than that and making tag team wrestling and ourselves the best ever. I have two things that are very high on the list for me. We want to be the first ever two-time AEW tag team champions. Until then or after then, we want the, the IWGP tag team titles. And that's very, very important to us and that's something we wanted to do for a while and we want to make sure that when we do it we do it right we haven't tried to do anything where we're gonna waste it because when we do it like i said we want tag team wrestling to be talked about and buzzed about and we think that can be something that's cool but it's very high on my list right now to be two-time AEW tag champs and then add another star to the collection so that being said, now knowing uh, AEW's relationship with New Japan, now having this super show, super card, the Forbidden Door, what do you guys want to do on that? If we do get the opportunity to win the IWGP Tag Team Championships, we'll be the only ones, uh, the only tag team in history to hold WWE, Sprawl, SmackDown, NXT, AEW, AAA, ROH, and IWGP. But if we do all that and we, and we hold all those titles, is there a debate anymore? You know, and I, and I say that humbly and that's as a real question. I don't say that as, oh, there's no debate. We are the greatest ever. But really, what's the debate now? You know, where are we at in the debate? You guys have also posted recently about taking select indie bookings. What is that going to look like for you guys in the future? How do you pick and choose what shows you want to do? Who is out there still that you guys want to get tangled up with? We got our opportunity to wrestle the Rock and Roll Express, which obviously was a bucket list thing for us. But we didn't want to just have a match with Rock and Roll Express. We wanted to give them their last great match. And that match is so fucking good, man. So obviously, you know, that was one. Uh, the American Wolves, uh, Davey Richards and uh, Eddie Edwards, uh, we have them in June in Beckley, West Virginia. They were considered at one time the greatest tag team in the world. So we get to test skills against each other there. And June the 13th, maybe, uh, in Massachusetts, Bret Hart is managing me and Cash against the sons of the four horsemen, Brock Anderson and, and Brian Pillman with Arn in their corner. Anything where we can kind of do a one-night-only thing for us, like check it off our bucket list, and also help maybe get some tag team buzz going because it's something like the Wolves – like people might want to see that match and it's stuff that we want to do because we want to work with the best, obviously, but we want to do things that also get eyes on tag team wrestling. So we kind of get to just pick and choose now, like, Hey, who are some teams from the past that we weren't able to work with at a certain time frame because of companies and contracts and all these other, or they, there was injuries and breakups and all this other stuff that now are possible. You guys are just living your best damn lives, huh? We had a talk a while ago where we said, well, let's just change our mentality and just, have fun, do the things that are fun to us, that matter to us, and we can just enjoy and stop stressing about all the other stuff. Control what we can control and make the most of that. And when we did that, I think it changed a lot. And now it's just kind of like, okay, it's working, so let's keep rolling with it. Let's do the things that are still fun for us, and people just happen to be having fun with that. Hey, guys, if you're here listening to the sessions, thank you, hello, hi, and... You love some combat sports? Well, be sure to check out Boxing with Chris Mannix. It's every Friday as he talks with the biggest names in boxing, UFC, and yes, even the occasional wrestling superstar. Chris is one of the most passionate and influential voices in the sport 
and he's here every week to help you get smarter on all things boxing. He'll also help you win some money on FanDuel with his weekly betting segment where he breaks down the best bets for all the big fights. Download Boxing with Chris Mannix only here on the Volume Podcast Network. I feel like I have so much to talk to you about that I'm like, where do I even start? Do we start in WW? Do we like work our way back? Where like where do we You tell me. I'm an open book. Let's start WWE, I guess. I feel like that's the place to go. So, okay, when you first got signed to WWE, because you you have like an insane background, even like prior to that. I mean, I'm familiar with it, but obviously, like just like reminding myself as I was getting ready for this, I'm like, how the fuck did you even get into wrestling? Like, how did that happen? I mean, from you to be going from like NYU, playing basketball, how did you end up in wrestling? I always wanted to wrestle. You know, I was a fan since I was like so young, since I can remember going to shows at Madison Square Garden, Nassau Coliseum, the Meadowlands. And then I guess there was a point in time in high school when it wasn't cool anymore. And I didn't care. And I stayed a wrestling fan. I think uh, I went to college, you know, pre-med, took the MCAT, uh, was doing all that good stuff. And I was pretty much lying to myself that I was going to be a doctor. I didn't really have any passion for it. And then after I graduated college, or actually when I was studying for the MCAT, I was like, I'm going to do my best on this exam, but this shit is not, I, I, I have no passion for this. And if I, you know, have to go to med school and a residency and doing something that I'm not very interested in, that I'm pretending that I want to do and I'm pretending I love it. Uh, it wasn't worth it to me. So once I graduated college, the next day I went to Johnny Rod's wrestling school and paid tuition that day and started training. What was that conversation with your family? Because that is like a real hard left. For a while there, I, I kind of hid it from everybody because I was a bit apprehensive. I didn't know what their reactions were going to be to my decision. I didn't think that they were going to be very favorable reactions. So um, I kind of kept it secret for a while until I started traveling to a few shows. And then I started getting in touch with WWE. And uh, that's kind of when I told my parents, like, hey, I've been wrestling and I'm actually going to get signed to WWE. It was a lot to hit them with all at once. When they found that I was wrestling, they found that I was moving to Tampa to train with WWE. Is that right when you lived with John? Yeah. So I got to FCW. What a shit show that must have been. Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> that was, uh, I moved in with John in 2012 because I had a roommate when I first got there and he ended up getting released. And John, he was looking for a new place to live because his place, his first place was a complete dump. We drove by it one time. I'm like, dude, you lived here? What the fuck? <laughs> it was like a literal cockroach ridden. Like, Yeah, it was horrible. So he was trying to move out because it really I don't know, it served its purpose, but he didn't want to live there anymore. And I happened to have, uh, you know, my roommate at the time got released and was moving out and going back home. So uh, I just told him, you know, you can move in with me. This is what rent is. We'll split it. And that's that. And then he moved in. And we didn't really know each other that well before that. So when he was moving in, it was a bit awkward. Like, shit, I don't even really know this guy. And I'm sure he was thinking the same thing. And he's not like, he's not the easy guy to like warm up to either. Like he's a tough nut to crack. Yeah. So that first night we went to the movies, me, him and, uh, and Juice Robinson. That's so sweet. Yeah. We all went to the movies and then we were off to the races from there. I mean, there's so many stories I could ask about that, but like, whatever, we don't need to. And I probably know most of them anyways. I mean, the ones I don't know, I probably don't want to know. There's a lot of good ones, <laughs> bad ones. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so you're in WWE. Things are going great. You're paired up with Enzo. Um, how? Let's just let's just move ahead to you getting onto the main roster and like what all happened there because you guys had your success and then shit started to hit the fan. What happened? Man, we were a star that burnt bright and quick. We went to the main roster. Everything was was going great. You know, we were selling a lot of merchandise. We were making really good money and. The amount of shirts in the crowd on hard cam that were ours was crazy. And in the moment then, I didn't even, I just took it as like, this is going to be how, this is just normal. And looking back now, I, I appreciate it a lot more because in the moment it was kind of, you know, we were doing it every night and it kind of just, you know, we expected that. So looking back, yeah, like we were a pretty hot item uh, at that point in time. 
and then shit hit the fan, you know, uh, they broke me and Enzo up and then I tore my ACL and then Enzo got fired. And then I came back and you saw a lot of that. Let's talk about that moment of this like heat moment. You and I are doing rehearsals for a promo that you were going to do. You were in rehearsals. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you tell the story and I'll back it up. Well, we were doing rehearsals and yeah, I feel like maybe there was a lot of stuff going on that day and I guess I must have made a comment like, are we going through the whole thing in rehearsal? Or It was a long promo. It was a long promo, very bulky. And it was like, yeah, there was a busy show pack day. And I thought that maybe they just wanted to get the shot where we're going to stand. So you look way shorter than me. You know, they put you, you know, the little tricks of the trade. And I said, are we going through the, the whole promo? Because it was, it was like two pages long. And there's a lot of things to rehearse that day. And there were a lot of big things going on. And, uh, I don't know. I, you knew better than me. I don't know what happened after that. That was like, I, I was already kind of not doing well. And I was really not being a good employee. And I was really not living up to my end of the bargain. And uh, I was making a lot of mistakes. And these, they came back to back to back to back. These weren't like six months separated, isolated incidents. It was all at once. My recollection of that before we get into all of these other things is that just so to like clarify with everybody is that, yeah, it was a day you and I were standing there going over the promo. You were clarifying with the camera crew. You didn't want to feel like you were wasting anyone's time to go over the promo. And that was misinterpreted as if you thought you were too good to rehearse the promo. Perception's reality. And I guess my perception at that time, because like I said, there were some mistakes being made. My perception at that time was grandiose ego or out of control. I don't know. I, the perception definitely wasn't good. So I think that, you know, when you look at that situation and you already are very biased towards somebody because they keep fucking up someone, I don't know who must've taken it. Like who the fuck does the person think he is? He's just not going to do rehearsal, which wasn't the intent. And, and I talked to you after I was like, did, did I seem like I was blowing that off or, and you, I think everybody, the cameraman was confused. Everybody was very confused. You know, when that happened, I kind of knew like, this is not going to go very well for me the next month or so. And I had numerous conversations with you in catering. I remember there was one where I said to you, I'm getting fired. And you were, you know, you're trying to be like a good friend and you're like, I don't know. And I was like, no, I'm definitely getting fired. I, I knew it. So what were those moments like for you? Because I know that there was like, I mean, there was just a lot of stuff going on at that time. I mean, was that when like the drinking and stuff really picked up for you was during that time of like the stress and whatnot? Yeah. And like 2017, the drinking was really out of hand. It was easy to hide because addicts, alcoholics are very good at hiding their alcoholism. So I was hiding it from a lot of people. You know, I got injured. And when I came back, it was just in a bad place mentally and not to blame it on taking all medications that I definitely shouldn't be drinking with. You know, I guess I just kept drinking and kept fucking up. And uh, the drinking, yeah, it got completely out of hand to the point where everybody was noticing. There was no hiding it anymore. Everybody knew. And, uh, you know, it's sad to say, looking back, but at the time, I knew everybody knew and I still didn't give a fuck. And I was like, I don't care. Well, I don't know what switch flipped in my head, but I really gave up spiritually, I think, at that point. I was done. So when you actually got released, did that make things better or worse? Was there like a bit of relief of like, okay, at least I'm not worrying about this happening anymore? Or was it like, oh, fuck, this thing that I've been dreading has finally happened? Yeah, it was initially it was a small, very small relief because I had known it was coming, but that uncertainty can really eat you alive, you know, especially at night, you're trying to fall asleep. You kind of know it's coming, but you're not sure. When I got released, that very small amount of time. It was a relief, but the drinking got really out of hand after that point, because, you know, I had a roof over my head, uh, had plenty of money in the bank. I had no responsibilities anymore. I had no one to keep me accountable. And I was by myself kind of in Tampa, Florida, where no one, none of my family members or my, my friends from home were around to check on me. It was a recipe for disaster. And it really got it got bad. And look, looking back now, it's, you know, I'm very, very fortunate that the consequences, I, I faced some really bad consequences, but I'm very fortunate that it, consequences didn't end up worse. 100%. Like 
Thank God. Um, and yeah, I mean, just like, you know, seeing some of these things happening from the outside, I knew obviously you and John had still been in contact. You guys had been talking and, and whatnot, but yeah, was there part of you that wanted to move back to New York at that point just to like have that support? Yeah, I was very confused, but moving back to New York was, I definitely wanted to move back to New York. I was after I got released going back quite often, at least every other week I was going back for at least a weekend just to be home. And, um, I really wanted to, to kind of move back home, but I still had that outlet in Tampa where nobody was going to see me. Nobody was going to judge me. I could drink all I wanted, live in my little bubble and not be accountable to any other person. So yeah, I, I kept going back to Tampa because I knew I had a problem. I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew I needed to change, but I didn't want to, and I could get away with a lot more on my own in Tampa. When did you decide that you didn't want to drink anymore? Because I mean, I know that is such a common thing of being like, I know I have a problem, but I still want to do this thing. When does that change? Like, what was that moment like for you? To be honest, the final time that I went to rehab, because the first time I went to rehab, I was doing it for other people. You know, I was doing it for family and, you know, there's an intervention and all that and friends and Lexi and you know, everybody that was involved and close to me in my life at that point, even Enzo. And um, I only went to rehab to appease them. So I didn't really want to quit. It got worse and worse and worse after that. And finally, you know, in early 2020 is when I went back to rehab for the final time. How many times did you go? Three. And um, that was the point in time where I'd gotten my ass whooped by alcohol and I conceded defeat and I surrendered. I wasn't going to be able to beat this alcohol thing. I was tired of just living the life I was living and suffering horrible consequences and just watching my life go up in flames. So I guess that's rock bottom. Rock bottom is when I, for me, it was when I finally said, this shit ain't worth it anymore and you're going to end up dead or in prison, or this is just going to end very poorly. And that was kind of when I finally gave in. When you look back at like photos from that time or like think about how you felt during all of that to, to like where you're at now, I know you just posted a tweet recently about like where you're at feeling so good and sober and clean and everything is awesome. What is it like now, like being pulled out of that funk and being able to, to look back at it with hindsight being 2020? I have so much more gratitude. Um, when I look back at those pictures, you know, I'm embarrassed, a little ashamed, but I Honestly, in my heart, I feel terrible for that person in the picture because, you know, I knew I know what he was going through and I know how bad it got. And I was just so out of shape and just unkempt and not taking care of myself. And uh, it shows in pictures and videos or, or anything that I look back at from from then. And uh, yeah, I guess it's, it's tough to look at in one regard, but in another sense, it's just um, look at where I'm at today. It makes me very grateful for where I'm at right now knowing it could have gotten worse than it was. So you're very lucky and look at the turnaround you've made. That's one of those things. Like, I mean, as soon as John came back and everyone was like, holy crap, he looks so great. Like he looks 10 years younger. And like to look at what he looked like before. And there was like a photo going around of like them side by side. And it's like, holy shit. Like you really don't realize it when you're like in the thick of it or it just becomes the norm. And then when you can like really have like that moment of clarity to look back at it, it's like, it's so eye-opening. It's crazy. Yeah. You look different. You feel different. It shows. And just there's a vibrance, I, I guess, to people when they get sober. It's very liberating. How long did it take for that to really set in for you? I know there's like so many different stages of like kind of going through that for you to like really be feeling like your best version of yourself. Takes a, takes a while. Um, you know, I had... There's, there's something that, you know, not many people know about, but if you research it, it's, it's out there. They, uh, you know, post-acute withdrawal syndromes, they call it PAWS, P-A-W-S. And at the 30, 60, 90 day and the six month mark, you, you get withdrawal symptoms that I never knew that before. And usually that's a key for someone to relapse. So I guess probably after that first year that that's when it kind of settled in like, okay, I can live my life like this forever. Like I can do this. I feel so much happier. I'm, I'm at peace. You know, I, I think um, that's something that I, I strive for is just peace. Because for my entire life, pretty much up until like, getting sober, I just never had moments of peace without alcohol. 
it's crazy to finally have, find peace without drinking. And that's kind of where I'm at now is, you know, I have ups, I have downs, bad days, good days, stressed out some days. We all have that, but there's that constant peace in my life that, um, yeah, it's really, it's, it's great. It's, I'm, I'm a happy individual. Talk to me about DDP stepping in. How did he help you? You've mentioned Lexi a few times. Of course, she, she is your girlfriend. She is a DDP's stepdaughter. What is your relationship with DDP and how did he help you? I guess after I had that first seizure in Philadelphia, it was back in 2018, uh, he got in touch with me. He said, you know, if you're ever ready to come down here and visit Atlanta, and I'd, I'd really like to help you. And uh, I guess in May of 2019 is when I went down to Atlanta to link up with him and just hanging out pretty much, working out, hanging out, talking and we developed a relationship and a bond and he's helped me tremendously. He was, you know, he was very instrumental in getting me to rehab the first time. And Did you have much of a relationship with him prior to all this happening? Not really. No, I didn't even have his phone number. I don't think it was hi, goodbye. He was somebody I always bonded with. I don't know if it's that New York, New Jersey thing. I don't know, but there was always some sort of connection there. But no, I, I never really had that good of a relationship with him until mm-hmm. until that point. That I mean, that just speaks such volumes to like, you hear these stories about DDP, like being this godsend to so many people and extending an olive branch and helping people through so many different situations. So it's really cool to know that that exists and that he was there to like help you out. Yeah. And obviously through him, I met Lexi. <laughs> yeah. Wait. Okay. So, so how did that all happen? So you're, you're hanging out with DDP. He is like a, a rock that you've been leaning on helping you through all this stuff. And then in walks Lexi. Well, no, I walked in cause she was, uh, she, I guess Dallas was like, Hey, you know, I got this guy coming this, this week to stay with us and work out. And you know, a lot of the times when someone comes to stay with Dallas, it's an older person or Someone that's having, you know, physical problems and you, but usually older at the, at the tail end of their career or already retired. So that's what she thought. And then, you know, she was in the kitchen in pajamas and very not done up and she was just having coffee or whatever. And I walked upstairs and she was like, I didn't know that this was the person, but we developed a friendship uh, first because that's a tough situation to navigate. So we developed a, a good friendship and it kept getting better. And then finally, um, we started dating and she was there for me uh, in my corner, you know, through rehab, through everything. So she's been a godsend. I remember talking to you about her like forever ago. We were at like what, like a Northeast show together or something. And you had like mentioned, you're like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm seeing this girl, Lexi. You gave me the advice to, to actually date her. Yeah, we were at Northeast Wrestling. I think uh, John had wrestled in the main event. I know there was weapons and shit because you were freaking out a little bit. We were talking backstage at the monitor and uh, I was telling you about her and I was like, maybe, you know, we should wait a little bit longer, see what else is out. I don't know why I, I was very apprehensive about starting the relationship. Then you were like, you just told me, you said, well, do you really like her? And I was like, yeah. And you were like, does she really like you? Yeah. And you kind of shot it to me straight. You're like, what are you waiting for, dude? You pussy, you fucking do it. Yeah, I mean, I'm very much so of like the mindset of like, listen, if you're into somebody, just be into that person. You don't have to worry about playing like some games or like worry about like playing the field or whatever. If if you're into someone, you're going to be thinking about them all the time anyways. Just go for it. Lean into it. So you guys are welcome. So thank you for that. Hey, I'm glad that it's working out. Very, very cool. How is the relationship? How is it being in this relationship with this person that you're so into and you guys are living together? What's the status? Like I said, the first year was was a little bit rocky just because of rehab and all the stuff that I was going through. And um, But yeah, she moved in two Novembers ago. And then uh, our lease expired this past November and we moved in here uh, to this new place with a whole lot more sunlight. Beautiful and nice backdrop. View. Yeah, a nice view and, and all that. And She's now on the road now every week with AEW, um, you know, working there as a backstage interviewer and she works with social media and she does some other stuff for YouTube and she's on the road every week now, which is fucking awesome. She's getting that opportunity. Yeah. So we're kind of, we live here with our two French bulldogs, uh, Hudson and Bam Bam. She's on the road during the week. Uh, I'm on the road sometimes on the weekend, uh, a few times, a few times a month, maybe one weekend off a month. Um, so we're kind of figuring that out right now, navigating that you know, those waters of how we're going to get used to being apart, you know, so much. But yeah, it's been fucking awesome. She's a godsend. She's an angel for me. 
you know, she makes my life so much better. So, um, yeah, I just, uh, I'm so happy that, you know, I met her. I'm so happy that I was at Dallas's that day. Call it a cosmic experience, call it fate, whatever you want to call it. It's, I definitely believe in that shit. So, um, yeah, life is fucking grand right now. And she's a huge part of it. How was stuff with impact? Like, what was it like for you in that period of like not being with WWE, wondering what was next? Um, winding up at Impact, but before you even got to Impact, was there a period of time where you were questioning what you even wanted to do if you were going to stay in pro wrestling? Yeah, I had no idea when I when I started, you know, my sobriety when I was getting some months under my belt. Um, yeah, I was considering going back to school uh, for a master's or MBA, and I wasn't really sure if I wanted to wrestle anymore. I don't know what you would maybe not bitterness or just caution or just maybe I don't want to go back to that. You know, maybe I'm not as in love with it as I once thought. Um, So I was really pretty confused for a while there, but I was enjoying sobriety and that was amazing. And I was had to really focus on that for quite a while. But there comes a point where I wanted more and uh, I want to start doing things. And um, I texted uh, Gallows uh, about working the show. Kind of just I was going to go back, see if I liked it, if I didn't change course and do something else, go back to school. Um, I don't know. I, you could see it now. I was very confused. I didn't really have much. So um texted Gallows and he got me on a show in, in Atlanta and one of his shows and came back and got a really great reception. And um, it's what I love. It's my first love. So the decision was made that night. Like, okay, I'm going to keep doing this because uh, this is, this is my true first love. Thanks so much for hanging out with us, guys. Uh, Hopefully you enjoyed the week, enjoyed the best of the sessions. You guys can hear the full-length interviews um, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Just uh, download them, give them a listen, give them a like, a review. And if you want to see what you're hearing, head on over to my YouTube page. Just search Renee Paquette. It's all up there, and you can see us talking Having this interview, having a hangout, it's all up on there. Um, and that's been like a really great, cool, growing community. So uh, I'm really enjoying the hangouts on the YouTube as well. So we can see you guys over there. And jump in the comment section, you know. Jump in, chime in, leave a comment. Uh, we like filtering through them all, reading about them. Maybe even like, I don't know, some constructive criticism if you had it. We're all ears. God, did I open up a can of worms by saying that? I don't know. Be nice. Be cool in there. This has been The Sessions.